see all of you. And uh, I'm going to call my wife to come up here for a second, if you would, please. My wife, Carla. My wife, Carla, is having her 80th birthday today. And uh, she has been a constant source of wisdom, love, and blessing to me all these years for 53, going on 54 years. So, um, and she was willing to give up her birthday <laughs> celebration so that we could get together. And uh, I've asked her to, to pray over us from the back. And uh, we've got intercessors because um, I need a lot of prayer. And so, anyway, I just wanted you to know how much I appreciate her. And uh, Karen, could we have a song? This song seemed to me to be a very appropriate song. Um, can we get the words up? Walking around these walls. Do you know this song? It's, it seemed like an appropriate song because a lot of us have had disappointments this week in our prayer life. I have. Um, it's been a tough week, actually. But um, tonight, I feel more hope and goodness and joy coming into me than for a long time. There's no exact reason for it out there, but in here. And so I'm hoping I can impart some of that. <laughs> so let's just, let's just stand and, and sing this song as a way of starting. around these walls I thought by now they'd fall but you have never failed me yet waiting for change to
promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me. Your promise still stands. Great is your Father, we just lift up this evening to you. Open our hearts to what you want to say to all of us. The encouragement, the blessing, the hope that you could come to our land in a third great awakening. And we're asking you to make us excited to spur our hearts on so that we understand we're like lining up with your heart. And we want to hear from you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I had no idea when I asked Ron for permission to speak on this subject, I had no idea what we'd be facing this week. But it's been a terrible week. I mean, it's really been an awful week. A lot of our prayers, Carla and my prayers, it seems like the opposite happened this week. Um, does anybody feel that kind of that way? And, uh, and, and it almost seems as though our basic organs of government, our basic, the things we've trusted in, you know, like uh, our voting system, uh, our balance of powers in our government, uh, freedom of religion, uh, all kinds of things, basic morality, all of those things have been falling apart. And it caused me to, uh, to think back to the people who gave us all of that at the beginning. They were our Christian forefathers and mothers. And what had happened to them was what we used to call regeneration. I like that word regeneration because it it conveys that there's some power coming from God into human hearts and making us new creations. And they had experienced several decades before a move of God called the Great Awakening. And it was from the foundations of the power of God and what God had done that all of that other stuff came into our country and they figured out how to form a government that's blessed us immensely over the last years, centuries. All of that seems to be kind of up for grabs right now. And it, it, it is a good opportunity for us to realize 
We don't need to put our trust in the things that they created, but in the power of God out of which they created it. In other words, we need to go back to more basic things. That this country is founded in a unique experience of the power of God. And we have a unique pattern and a history with Great Awakenings. So we're going to be looking at Great Awakenings because I'm serious. God is calling the body of Christ, the Christians, to come together and all focus on one thing, the third Great Awakening. Not to put our confidence in Supreme Courts and voting systems and you know, getting rid of dominion and all of these other things, but what is going to change us is if we can have the same thing happen that happened for them. And praise God, he, God, is giving us good reason to believe that he is about to do this. So that's what I'm going to talk about. T tonight I was going to share a little bit of my own story so that you can get a feel for why I am interested in this subject and what would be my authority to talk on this. Um, so I have to talk a little bit about myself. But um, then we're going to get into Scripture. Where is this rooted in Scripture, this belief in great awakenings? We always want to root ourselves in the original vision statement, right, from God. So then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, where this comes from, where it's rooted, and then end with a, the story of the Second Great Awakening, uh, which I'm excited about. I can almost guarantee you've never heard that story. Um, it's been almost entirely forgotten. Uh, and the people who led it have been almost entirely forgotten. But if we want to figure out what the Third Great Awakening might look like, wouldn't it be a good idea to go back to the Second Great Awakening? Hey, what a concept. And so that's what we're going to do uh, by the end of tonight. And then um, next Saturday, we want to look at how the Great Awakenings fit in to the total picture of the kingdom of God. So the gospel we have is called the gospel of the kingdom for a reason. <laughs> and uh, what is the a relationship between these great awakenings? We've had four of them in our country, actually, already. What is that? How is that connected with the gospel of the kingdom? And if you put the story of the gospel of the kingdom into 40 chapters, where are we now? Are we chapter 10, chapter 20? Where are we? So we're going to be talking about what time is it? Where are we in God's time scheme of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God? That'll be next week. And then the following week, we're going to look at prophecy. There have been prophets speaking on behalf of God, telling the body of Christ what God is planning. How do you evaluate that? And these are not only uh, current prophets who are on Sid Roth. 
we're talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Smith Wigglesworth or Mark Ma, who is the founder, one of the founders of the Back to Jerusalem movement, a Chinese guy. So these are not necessarily people you're already thinking about, and that's going to be for the third week, Saturday night. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff here, and I'm pretty sure you've never heard of it. So we'll see if you have or not. So let me introduce myself and a little bit of my experience. In 1983, um, Carla and I went to a conference at the Christian Renewal Center in Silverton, Oregon, right near the Silver Creek Falls that you see on everybody's calendars. And uh, there was two charismatic speakers um, that we went to hear. But the guy that changed our lives wasn't even on the speaker's roster. <laughs> God has surprises for us, you know. Have you experienced that? And uh, this, was, this was a guy who had never spoken at a conference before. And he absolutely, totally changed our lives for good. It's like we were one kind of person before and then we became another kind of person after and what he did to make that change, he introduced us to the history of Great Awakenings throughout the world, and especially in our country. His name was Dick Simmons. Probably never heard of him. He's been up in Washington, D.C. for many, many years. A hidden intercessor living right next to the Supreme Court all these years. He died last month. Dick changed our lives by showing us God and the power of God which has been hidden. So we saw the amazing thing, things that God has done by his initiative and his power in our country. And Carla and I were so, were so smitten that we accepted his challenge at the end of the conference to start every day praying two hours for the next Great Awakening. And that was 1983. So we had to completely turn our schedule around to get started on this, but Dick used to talk about praying until. You don't just pray experimentally. You, you, you accept a calling, an assignment, and you pray until you see it happen. So we started praying like that, for a great awakening. And six months later, Dick Simmons called me on the phone from where he lived at that time in Bellingham, Washington, and he said, Doug, how would you like to join a little team of people who are going to meet 
at the Christian Renewal Center and start praying once a month for revival in the state of Oregon. And uh, we'll get together there. We'll pray and fast for the first Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of every month. Are you up for this? And I said, yes. He was going after the men. So this is going to be a men's gathering. Um, we did this. There's about a dozen men that got together there, and we did this. And before long, we started zeroing in on a particular problem that the state of Oregon had, which was a cult. It's called the Rajneesh Param cult. The largest cult that's ever been in our country. And they were gathering in Wasco County, Oregon, and Dick w felt that one of our targets should be to ask God to get rid of this cult out of the state of Oregon. So that was half of what we prayed for. The other half, asking him to come and send revival. We went for a year and three months. And then Carla and I got a call to come to Richmond, Virginia and pastor a church here. So I dropped out of the prayer team. Um, but it went on one more time. And I only found out two months ago what happened during that last prayer time. Dick Simmons heard from God that our assignment was done and we could stop the prayers. And so, but from my point of view, it looked like our prayers had been totally ineffective. Nothing had changed. It was like the, the cult was bigger and bolder than ever. So we packed up and we got going across or down the, or I should say up the Columbia River on I-80N, as they called it then, and we, we got to Wasco County and the uh, county seat of Wasco County. And as we were driving through the Dalles, God said, turn on your radio. So I reached over and I turned on my car radio. And there, at that moment, was the report that the cult was in complete disarray the leaders of the cult were fleeing in their 80 Rolls Royces, uh, trying to get away from the Immigration and Naturalization Service that were invading the cult. And um, as I heard the report of what was happening as we left Oregon, the Lord said, this is what your prayers have done. That was just news to me. I mean, uh, this was all an experiment. You know, I'm just a Presbyterian pastor, you know, trying to make a church grow. This is basic training for me. And so I'm learning this principle of pray until. And uh, when we got up to Virginia, you know, it was still pray until, but we had this other assignment to pray towards the next great awakening, right? So Carla and I have devoted our time to, to do this ever since.
We moved to Richmond in 1985, and we've been praying until. It's hard to pray for something for 38 years. And so, in order to encourage us and keep us going, God has from time to time given us words. For example, in 1985, no, in 2004, uh, he, uh, he basically, basically said retire from pastoring. Your job is to pray. And so, that was a year, two years of a great many uh, words from God. And uh, I'll never forget, we were uh, sitting in uh, Commonwealth Chapel after a, a talk that had been given, and we were just getting ready to go when this lady came up who was a prophet. And she said, God just gave me a word for you. And uh, she had a lot of stuff to say. I was trying to find my pen, you know. And, uh, and the, oh, the one thing that I remember her saying at the end was, you are a true Simeon. And you will see with your own eyes the answer to your many prayers. Well, that was very encouraging. But... Um, wait till you hear the end of the story because the very next day we had a lady named Rhonda Huey in our dining room and she invited us to attend the international Kansas City International House of Prayer and they do a um, like a an internship for people with gray hair they call it the Simeon Company okay so God provided money, and we, we went. And at and it, it, Kansas City International House of Prayer, they have prophets. Have any of you been there? Uh, just anybody? No, okay. They have prophets there. So the first thing, we had about 20 people with gray hair that were gathered in this internship, and they brought four prophets up, and a lady named Sandy Hall looked at me and gave me my prophecy. And the last thing she said, as I'm writing these words down, the last thing she said, oh, and you, sir, are a true Simeon, and you are going to see with your own eyes the answer to your many prayers. And it was exact, word for word, what I had received before coming to Kansas City. Now, that's encouragement. Do you see? And so we keep going not out of desperation, but out of confidence and faith. Uh, there have been many, many other of those kinds of things, but I'm just going to get on and just say, oh, oh, more than anything, the encouragement that we've had is the number of people like Mike Bickle, Lou Engel, David Bradshaw, Sean Foyk, all these people, David's tent up there, Jason Hershey uh, in Washington. To say nothing of my mentor, Dick Simmons, up there in Washington, D.C., Intercessors for America. A, a lot of these intercessors are getting the same thing from God. God says, I am sending the third great awakening. And the number of people who are praying 
for this right now are in the tens of thousands. Back in 1983, it was just this little band of people. That's encouragement. And so I'm excited because I'm seeing this thing grow. One more story about myself. I'm sorry to be talking about myself so much, but part of it is I want to convey my encouragement to you guys. <laughs> um, God told me through a prophet at about the same time that all this other was happening, she came up to me and she said, I have made Doug my storyteller because I am a storyteller. So God is saying that to me through her. And what I've seen is that God has charged me with the task of taking the stories of God's power and glory in the past and retelling them. That's my job. And I think one reason for that has to do with Habakkuk 3. Um, Habakkuk 3 is, has been a very important prayer to me. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, Habakkuk could remember the great deeds of God because they're written in the Bible. And so he knew what God had done for Israel in the past, and he could easily pray, God, do it again. The church has forgotten the mighty deeds of God that he has done. And therefore, we have lost the motivation for praying, God, do it again. And uh, I <coughs> discovered this the hard way. One day when I was working under my house, uh, trying to put a, a vent onto my dryer. And uh, suddenly I lost my memory. No, no reason, it just vanished. And I happened to come out from under the house and talk to my wife, and she said, are you getting ready for, our, for our fun the funeral tonight? I said, what funer funeral? I don't know about any funeral. And then she, pretty soon she began to discover I wasn't remembering anything. I wasn't remembering even what I said five minutes ago. I lost the ability to remember. She thought I was having a stroke. Took me down to Sentara Hospital. They checked me out, you know, top to bottom. Found out I was perfectly healthy. That's nice to know, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, uh, during the process of that, my memory all came back. Then uh, my pastor, Ron Vaught, came to visit me. And he said, as he was coming through the door to my room, 
I can still see the picture of him coming in there. He said, God just spoke to me. He said, what's happening to you is something about your ministry. He didn't know what he was talking about, but I did. As soon as he said it, I knew exactly what God was meaning. God wanted me to experience total forgetfulness so that I could understand what has happened to the church and its memory of the power of God. And the reason why he wants me to write and speak about it is to fuel the memories so that we can fuel the prayer again. That's the same thing Dick Simmons had done for me. And uh, so that's a big reason why I believe I'm supposed to tell stories about God. I believe glory amnesia is a satanic weapon. There's something in the atmosphere that wants Christians to forget all about what God has done. Now, we write church histories. They're all about doctrines and controversies and grand cathedrals that we've built and all the stuff we have done for him. But somehow the God part has been left out over and over and over again. Glory, amnesia. So, I think I'm supposed to do this. I've got a couple of stories to tell you. And then we'll go home. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. <laughs> You're an encouragement. Um, the first one is about two guys who were fishermen, Peter and John. And they were walking towards the Jewish temple after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And you go past the tomb of Huldah, and you're facing this vast south wall of the Temple Mount, but there's two doorways at the bottom. They're not very impressive. They're like an up and down staircase, and they're going in the up staircase, and they're going through this dark passageway up the steps into this brightly shining court of the Gentiles with people going every which way, animals bleeding, you know, it's just a, a, a mass of confusion. And they are moving through that. They don't want to buy anything. The, the, the money changers' temples are going there, and uh, they, they, they're not interested. They go to the right to a place called Solomon's Portico, which is the only part of the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, that remained and was incorporated into the design of the second temple. So these are old columns there. And they go there, and then they turn left, and they go up some steps and into the court of women. And that's where the, the, the treasury uh, chests are. You, you put your money in. There's several of them. There's 12 of them, I think. But they're not interested in that. They're going through there, and they, they get to 
the most impressive gate in the whole complex. It's called the Gate Beautiful because it's got, it's tall, it's got massive uh, Corinthian bronze, you know, shaped, and, and they're heavy. I can imagine Peter and John are sort of, um, they're just compassionate looking kinds of guys. You know, a lot of people are just busy, no time for this. But Peter, something like that, and they're looking at him. Now, something is about to happen that I need to just take a break here and say several weeks before, if you go through the Israel court past the altar of unhewn stones and into the holy place, and then you'd see at the other side of the holy place there's this huge, humongous, three-part curtain, and it's just been torn mysteriously from top to bottom. I'm imagining that the Sanhedrin are wondering, how did this happen? How are we going to fix it? You know, all of the stuff that you have to do when you're in charge. But we know, because we're Christians, <laughs> we know this happened at the time of Jesus, and it had significance at the time of his death. And right now, something is going to happen. They, the presence of God, the manifest presence of God, is going to come right out of that holy of holies, right into the holy place, out of the holy place, into the Israel court, and it is going to confront Peter and John as they are facing this beggar. And Peter and John are starting to get used to this by now because it's happened before. But as they are reaching out, Peter reaching out to this man's hand, he knows what to say because the presence of God is there. And he says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. And suddenly, these twisted limbs straighten out. The man stands up on his legs and he starts walking and leaping and praising God. And everybody in that room knows this guy and knows this is no common, ordinary thing that's happened. Everybody is flabbergasted. And as this man dances out to Solomon's portico, Everybody follows him. Nobody stays behind. Even the priests who are in charge of the thing, they, they want to know what's going on here. And so they all gather on the steps of Solomon's portico. And Peter is given the exact words to say. These are the words of God that he gave to Peter, an ordinary fisherman. No theological training whatsoever, except he walked with Jesus. And the words I'm about to read to you are the best, most concise, single description of the kingdom of God that we have in our Bibles. So let me read that to you. After I take a drink of water. 
I'm just going to read the part that's relevant to us here. He says, this is Acts 3, and I'm going to read 19 to 21. Because he's telling the story of the kingdom of God, if you have eyes to see it. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. My version leaves out the word presence, prosopon, but it's there, and it's the most important word in the entire book of Acts. <laughs> Don't get me started on how translators leave out important words, okay? Forget about that. I didn't say it the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore all things, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, if you just look at this, if you just look at this, it tells all you need to know about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is divided into two eras, epics. There's a now epic and a then epic. The now epic is characterized by times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. The presence has gone out from the holy of holies. It's now going out to the nations. So there's going to be times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Then, part two of the story. Jesus is coming back from heaven where he will be until that time, the second advent. Why is he coming back? You see it right there in the word. He's coming back to restore all things. He is not coming back so that the Christian church can be raptured. He is coming back to restore all things. Jesus has a job to do. God the Father gave him the job. That's why he asked us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is He's one of these people that says, pray until. You see, it's not like, oh, the earth is going to be all destroyed and we've got to get out of here and go to heaven. The whole idea here is the gospel of the kingdom. And if we could just get these two parts, we would get the kingdom of God. Two parts. The now part, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. That then part, Jesus comes back, and one of the first things he does, he casts out Satan so that Satan can deceive the nations no longer. And Jesus becomes king of the nations, according to Revelation 15. That's the kingdom of God. Now, the church has come along and added wrinkles to the story. A lot of them. I wish we hadn't. 
I honestly, we, we've done a lot of damage to the gospel with our wrinkles. They're called amillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensationalism, and there's other wrinkles. Personally, I like the teaching of Mike Bickle at this point. Mike is kind of like a guy who goes down to the, the end of your bed, grabs the bedspread, and just shakes the thing, and all the wrinkles just go out. I think that's what we've got to do. And um, some friends of mine, uh, Messianic Jewish friends, the Tikkun ministry, I don't know if you know that ministry, Tikkun, um, Asher Intrader, um, who's the musician, Paul um, Wilbur, they're all a part of Tikkun, and uh, they're in Israel, and they've written about these things. They're trying to shake the bedspread, too. And so it seems to be like there's a, new, there's a new bunch of leaders and teachers who are trying to get back. And by the way, the word tikkun means restore. It's from this passage I just read to you. So it's, it's a bunch of new leaders and teachers who are trying to say, look, we've got to get back to the original pattern. All right, so enough about that. The original pattern has times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, but we call them great awakenings. I'm trying to, to get you linked up with the, the wording of the scripture and the promise, the very first promises of the apostles, going right back to this passage in Acts 3. And... Peter is somehow given the prophecy about times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Um, I hope you're fitting things together here. George Otis calls these transformational revivals. Uh, it's just different wording for all the same thing. There are times when the presence of God simply shows up in large places, cities, countries or parts of countries, islands like Fiji or the Hebrides Islands in Scotland and just covers the whole place. And we have had this happen in this country, but basically it's been forgotten. We need to remember so that we can pray for the next one. Do you see what I'm saying? It's really important that we get this. We're not praying for the Supreme Court. We're praying for God to fulfill his promise. So the great awakenings are really a fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. And I want to tell you just one story. As I have another drink of water. Do any of you know the name James McGreedy? See what I mean? <laughs> We've forgotten. James McGreedy was the leader. If there was a leader, he was the leader of the Second Great Awakening. James McGreedy was a Presbyterian pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
he had three tiny little Presbyterian churches. Most of the churches were Anglican. And while he was a pastor there, he would preach as though he believed that people were actually supposed to follow Jesus and, and obey his word. And, uh, and there were a lot of plantation owners and kind of aristocratic, uppity people, you know, gentlemen, and they had rowdy children. And the rowdy children, see, James McGreedy had a problem. He had, he had a reputation as being the ugliest pastor east of the Mississippi. Yeah, this is really true. In fact, there's no picture of James McGreedy to this day. You got, you got pictures of William Seymour, Jonathan Edwards, no picture of James McGreedy. But there's an important lesson here. You don't have to be pretty to be used of God. God evaluates us totally differently than people do. James McGreedy was a pastor of these three churches, and one day, a bunch of the children, the grown-up children of these uh, plantation owners around, I don't know if they were members of his um, congregation, I rather doubt it, but uh, a bunch of young people broke into one of his churches um, with axes and they smashed his pulpit. They broke up all of his pews. They lit fire to his pulpit, burned it to a crisp, and then they left a message in writing, get out of town or we're going to kill you. Several days later, the the pastor and the congregation showed up at this church, discovered this mess and the note, and it was as if James McGreedy hardly even noticed it. He certainly didn't leave town. Instead, he preached, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who slays the prophets, stones the prophets, you know, that passage. That was his text that day. And he just talked about pe people like this always come to a bad ending. And he stayed there and continued to preach. Sometimes what I found in my research on the Great Awakenings, people who are going to be used of God as leaders have to go through testing times prior to that. God has to see how um, reliable they are. Will they, they run away? And James McGreedy did not run away. Well, um, from that day on, James McGreedy began to get a burden, a prayer burden, a God burden for what he called the worst place in America. Everybody knew what the worst place in America was. It was Logan County, Kentucky. People called it Rogue's Harbor because this place was a catch basin for 
criminals who had committed crimes in other places and they knew if they could get to Rogues Harbor in Kentucky, they would never be prosecuted because the criminals ran the show there. And they wouldn't let any sheriffs or marshals or any, any law and order people in there. So they had safe haven. This was, a, this was the, just a, a catch basin for all of the psychopaths, sociopaths, you name it, the worst place in America. And James McGreedy was getting a burden for this place so that he went around to the churches of Carolina and he got the people to sign up to a prayer covenant. And the prayer covenant, I have a copy of it in my files, and it's one of those times where he says, I challenge you to pray until... Revival comes to the worst place in America. And people accepted the challenge. Then he went to the worst place in America, and he lived there. And he got a prayer covenant going there among the very few Christians that he found there. There were some Baptists, some Methodists, and some Presbyterians, a few of them. And he started a few churches, little tiny churches, but he built what he called a communion house. The communion house of James McGreedy is still there. And he called it a communion house because it was for the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and the Methodists to all get together and pray and have communion. So we were determined not to let denominational differences get in the way. We are praying as kingdom people. And uh, James McGreedy says that he wept and wailed with the people of God. I mean, this is not rational prayer, cold prayer. Uh, James McGreedy sees the horrible things that people are capable of in Kentucky and elsewhere. And uh, so he's very distressed, and the people are crying their prayers to God. Well, we're getting up to 1799 now. He went in 1797, so it's been a couple of years, and finally he has a communion service. 500 people are, you know, it's been growing. 500 people are now coming to his communion service, and... They are uh, crying out to God and having communion together. And I'm going to just read to you a historical account. Chaos broke out. A woman began shouting. The minister left his pulpit to quiet her. As he went, several Methodist friends pulled him aside for a warning. You know these people. They're Presbyterians. They're much for order. They will not bear this confusion. Go back and be quiet. The minister started to return to the pulpit, but as he did, the same force that caused the woman to shout fell upon him, and he said later, the power of God was strong upon me. I turned again, and losing sight of the fear of man, I went through the house exhorting with all possible ecstasy and energy. And the, just like the, the presence and the power of God was over everybody there, 500 people, a lot of them, falling on the ground, crying out for mercy. I mean, 
the presence is the part that's hard to define. But if you were there, you'd know it. Coming out from the Holy of Holies, now into the nations. And James McGreedy fulfilled the conditions to get the presence of God into a place. And then everybody is affected. And it's the worst place in America. There was a guy there named Barton Stone, J. Barton Stone, who was also, I believe, a Presbyterian pastor, but he was from a little ways away, you know, like 100, 200 miles away. I don't know exactly how far from Cane Ridge. It was named Cane Ridge because of the bamboo that grew up in that place. And he decided he was going to have a communion service. You know, if James McGreedy can do it, and, and, and he got James McGreedy to come, so it's like they're not in co competition at all, <clears throat> but they're together, and it's just a different location. Now, we're taking this elsewhere, and uh, they, they cleared some space. This time, not 500 people, but 28,000 people came to church. How do you get 28,000 people to come to your church? <laughs> Spoken by a true pastor. <laughs> How do you get 28,000? That's an eighth of the population of Kentucky. And they had to set up five pulpits because they had different preachers there. And as the word was preached by these ordinary preachers, people it was like men slain in battle. In fact, I think I've got it here. Uh, many, many fell down as men slain in battle and continued for hours together in an apparently breathless and motionless state, sometimes for a few minutes, reviving and exhibiting symptoms of life by a deep groan or a piercing shriek or by a prayer for mercy fervently uttered. The gloom cloud that had covered their faces seemed gradually and visibly to disappear, and hope in smiles brightened into joy. Let me try to explain what's happening here by going back to the Cambuslang revival in Scotland. You know the name Jonathan Edwards, right? And he was the main guy in the Great Awakening in this country. Well, there was a guy named McCullough in Scotland who formed a correspondence and got the news of how to have this by prayer. And he got prayer going in Cambuslane, which is south of Glasgow. And pretty soon, he's got even children, little children, crying out to God. It was the most amazing thing. The kind of prayer that was going on in Cambuslane. And finally, same thing. You know, the presence of God just showed up. People just in, in the presence of, of God. And finally, they get um, George Whitfield, famous evangelist, to come up. 30,000 people show up. How do you preach to 30,000 people without a microphone? Have you ever thought about that? And as George Whitfield preached, it would be thousands of people falling on their faces, crying out for mercy, and then moving through terrible 
really, it's, it's not what you'd call a time of refreshing. It's a terrible time. It looks horrible. But moving through that into great joy. And uh, the way Jonathan Edwards explained it was this. It's like there were two separate awakenings. One was a legal awakening, and the other was a grace awakening. The legal awakening would come first, then the grace awakening. We'd start out with Isaiah 6. O Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a generation of people of unclean lips. That was where it starts. Conviction of sin. The plumb line of God. God is righteous. God is holy. And nobody is so depraved that the power of God can't get to that and change it and transform it. That's what we learn from Rogue's Harbor. God had James McGreedy go to the worst place in America to demonstrate a principle. There is regenerating power. And nobody is immune when it's time for the presence of God to show up. I, I find this comforting for our time. So, <clears throat> what was the what was the effect of the Second Great Awakening? What did it accomplish? Let's talk about that for a minute. Was it just a bunch of emotionalism in church, and then people just go back home and? Uh, it's all the same. I'm going to read for you a, uh, a little tract that um, Dick Simmons read for us by J. Edwin Orr. This was a, uh, made for the Campus Crusade uh, for Christ way back in 1976. And J. Edwin Orr studied revivals. But this is what he said. Not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution, there was a moral slump. Drunkenness became epidemic. Out of a population of 5,300,000 were confirmed drunkards. They were burying 15,000 of them each year. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. What about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said that they had their most wintry season. The Presbyterians in General Assembly deplored the nation's ungodliness. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church was, quote, too far gone ever to be redeemed. Voltaire averred and Tom Paine echoed, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Take the liberal arts colleges at the time a poll taken at Harvard had discovered not one believer in the whole of the student body. They took a poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical place. It was started during the Great Awakening. But they discovered only two believers in the student body. It goes on like that, you know, that uh, the description of the way the United States was prior 
to the second great awakening. Sixty years pass. And that is going to include another time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord that happened in 1857 and 58 and 59, all across the United States. A time of refreshing. It's been almost entirely forgotten. So you take those two times of refreshing and you evaluate how was the United States changed because God came and visited the country. Well, these statistics are from Mark Knoll, professor of history at Wheaton. By then, 60 years later, 51 of the 54 main colleges had clergymen for presidents. This is universities who once were totally atheistic. Does this sound familiar? 30, at, at, the, at the, the end of that time, there were 35 churches for every bank. Today, there's four churches for every bank. The giving to churches was 25 times the, the amount that was paid in taxes to the government. The churches grew two to three times the rate of population growth at the time, even though the population at that time grew faster than any other time in the history of America. Presbyterian churches grew from 700 congregations to 6,000. Methodist churches, who were willing to get their hands dirty in the Kentucky Revival because Francis Asbury sent circuit riders into all of those areas, because he would cared about whether they were actually going to follow Jesus. They were Methodists. The Methodist churches grew from 700 to 20,000 churches. That's churches from 700 to 20,000, according to Mark Knoll, professor of history at Wheaton. So, here's what I want to say. If this sounds good to you, <laughs> there's only one way that it happens. And there's no alternative way that we could possibly invent. The Christians need to realize this is what we need. We need God to send a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, which the Apostle Peter promised at the beginning of this whole story. And just getting good Supreme Court justices is not quite the same thing. Let's go for the real thing that has already happened in our country several times. And we'll get to that next week. We'll look at more of this story.
I want to finish with a, um, a little email that I got many years ago, 2002. This was written by Bob Lohman, who is a guy in either Kentucky or uh, Tennessee who is a descendant of those people that experienced that move of God. And he has, he's kind of a local historian of it. Bob Lohman sent this to another guy that I, uh, I, I know, Gene Brooks, who sent it to a friend of mine who sent it to me. People do not know this story. I believe God sent it to me because I was going to be his storyteller. In 1802, some of the believers in the area of McGreedy's churches, sensing a lapse in the revival's fervor and fearing that it was about to end, everybody who has been through a, a, a visitation of God like this is afraid that it might end. Everybody. Besought God for many days and weeks to renew and continue the revival in all of its manifestation and his mighty power. There were only a few hundred of these people, and they did not advertise what they were doing. Secretly and fervently, they sought God for the revival to be renewed. After some months of intense prayer, many of those prayer bands were assured by God that just as they had been seeking God for another revival, so another one would come. They felt that the one they were in would be renewed for yet a time, as it was indeed afterwards. And by the way, that would include Charles Finney. What they said was that God promised them that though this revival would not last many more years, there would be another revival far greater than this one, far into the future, near the end of the age. This revival would come in two waves. The first wave would surpass anything that had gone before it, even the revival that began on the day of Pentecost. The first wave of the revival would be hijacked by ministers and churches seeking to use that, the revival for their own purposes, seeking to add members to their churches and to build up their kingdoms rather than God's. Because of that, the first wave of the revival, though it would last a long time, would end. The second wave would not come until a number of years later. When it comes, it will surpass even the first wave in its magnitude and its fervor. It will seem as if the whole world is coming to God. This wave of the revival will not be hijacked nor destroyed by anyone. Rather, it will continue through persecution until the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm just giving you a little taste right now of what we're going to be sharing next week and the following week. If this sounds good to you, maybe you'd want to come back next week. Because these things are just not being told. I believe God has raised me up to tell them. So, Father, I just thank you that we could be together tonight speaking of your glory and joining together in stirring up hope and faith 
that your kingdom would in fact come to the United States and your will would in fact be done in the United States. And we are the people who have been given this command. If my people who call themselves by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We need that right now, Lord. And we would like to commit ourselves to be, be the answer. We, we would like to be the people you're looking for to fulfill the conditions. Could you do that for us? Could you raise us up to be a, a mighty army tonight? And, and in the coming weeks, Lord, we want to be not dis discouraged uh, or, or feel like something has been terribly wrong or, or lost. We want to know that you are on the verge of something truly great. And it could happen right this year, in fact. And we're asking you to prepare us. Give us your heart. Show us what you're thinking. Allow us to be your friends, Lord. You said we were not just servants, but friends because you tell your friends your secrets. We want to know your secrets. We want to know what you're thinking about the, the United States. Surely you cannot forget us at a time like this. You are ready to come to our aid. You're the shepherd of our souls. You are the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're the king of nations. You're the king of kings. And you are our king. And so, Lord, we're asking you, could you find in us the answer that you're looking for? Could we be the aroma of Christ to God? Could we be the ones who hear so intently that we're ready to actually do what you said? So, Lord, I just believe that your spirit is here and you're, you're, you're planting fervency in hearts. And uh, we say thank you for that invisible work that is the real, true work of the Holy Spirit. Can't see it, 